0: Shalom, everyone. Bonjour, salutations. My name is Noel Joshua Hadley, and this is The Unexpected Cosmology. Now, I'm really excited for what I'm going to present to you tonight. I stumbled on this by total accident. It's just kind of one of those things that one thing led to another, and it feels good to be talking about my paper, Kings and Priests of the Millennial Kingdom, again. Uh, I originally presented this i think it was like a year ago now so it's a little embarrassing at this point that i haven't updated it all this time later well that's about to change tonight now before we get into this any further please do me a favor like this video subscribe to the channel if you haven't already I'm showing you the front page of my website, The Unexpected Cosmology. Uh, There's the latest article that went up the splitting of the Mount of Olives and the glorious appearing in 70 AD, which I haven't given a presentation on that yet. So don't worry, you haven't missed anything. And then there's my latest book, Bazaar Kifa. Well, here's what I wanted to show you. If it's going to load, there it is. But one of the ways you could support this ministry is by getting an all access pass five dollars a month and it gets you full access to all of my work so what you're looking at right here these are all my pdf files uh, that i currently have and i keep adding to them all the time and just scroll down here you can just see and i update them on this page you can come in download them and these are some of these are massive i mean some of these are hundreds you know two two three even four hundred pages some of these so of course you can sign up for the all access pass on my Patreon page, the link is below this video. Uh, $5 a month, that's an all access pass. $15 a month is for the ebook uh, readers Club. So You get all access p- plus a new monthly ebook. Uh, we have the, the magazine that we send out every single month, $30 a month that gives you the, the ebook, the magazine, straight to your doorstep as well as all access. Uh, $50 a month's uh, support gets you a brand new book every single month we publish a new book here at tuc uh it might be my own work it could be a guest writers it could be a historical relevance book that we have pulled out of the the ash heaps of history and restored it uh for your reading pleasure and of course 70 dollars will get you the book the magazine and everything else you guys probably remember some of this stuff Still scrolling. All right, here we go. Now, this is pronounced vesica piscis. Now, I wanna pronounce it like Pisces, like Pisces, but apparently it's piscis. So, I'm just letting you know up front uh, for when I don't pronounce it that way, and I pronounce it the way it seems naturally for me to pronounce it. This is Vesica. Oh, hi, Rivka. I'm live right now. I'm live right now. Okay. Well, I guess I need to stop or pause this recording. My baby just walked in the room. She just opened the door. I thought I locked it, but she's like a velociraptor. She can just open doors now and just like that she leaves vesica piscus or as i want to pronounce it vesica pisces the sacred divine and millennial kingdom architecture i think you guys are going to love this let's get right into it a funny thing happened on the way to the seashore Simon Kefa, that'd be simon Peter, in case you didn't know yet, Shimon Kipa pulled in the net and began calculating the great many fish that he caught. 153 was the vinyl tally. That's a very specific number. I mean, Yochanan likely seized various numbers of fish on any given day and on countless expeditions throughout his lifetime. And then consider that he probably didn't get around to writing his Bazora until decades after the fact. And yet this catch he remembered the number isn't a random one. It means something. Supposing you don't have the slightest clue what I'm talking about, then here is the reference. And this is coming from Bezorah, Yokanon, chapter 21. And we read, as soon then as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish lay thereon and bread. Yehusha said unto them, bring of the fish which ye have now caught, Shimon Kifa went up and drew the net to land, full of great fish, hundred and fifty-three in number. And for all there were so many, yet was not the and for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. Of course, that's Bazar Yochanan, chapter twenty-one, verses nine through eleven. It just so happens that one five three is a triangular number, being the sum of the first seventeen integers. It's also the sum of the first five factorials other fun facts assign the number 153 to a hexagonal number and a truncated triangle triangle number meaning that 115 and 153 are all triangle numbers that should make perfect sense to the math people in the room the rest of you will have to hang in there nodding as though you're in agreement Suffice to say, the final tally of fish is highly symbolic of something, and I think I know what it is. 153 is a Pythagorean number. Speaking of which, most people are unaware that Pythagoras has his own fish story to tell him, and it goes like this. At that time also, when he was journeying from Siberis to Crotona, I think that the uh, He, of course, is Pythagoras, but I think uh, Cyberus to Crotona is like the, the heel of the boot of Italy, if I'm not mistaken. He met near the shore with some fishermen who were then drawing their nets heavily laden with fishes from the deep and told them he knew the exact number of the fish they had caught. But the fishermen promising they would perform whatever he should order them to do. If the event corresponded with his prediction, he ordered them after they had accurately numbered the fish, to return them alive to the sea. And what is yet more wonderful, not one of the fish died while he stood on the shore, though they had been detained from the water a considerable time. Having therefore paid the fishermen the price of their fish, he departed to Crotona. But they everywhere divulged the fact, and having learnt his name from some children, they told it to all men. This would be Life of Pythagoras, chapter eight. Uh, The name of the author is uh, Iamblichus. I think, Imblicus, Iamblicus. The story is similar enough to Yochanan's account of Mashiach that many have claimed the Bible writer ripped off Pythagoras. But then the person giving this account was a Neoplatonist philosopher and a Phoenician named Porphyry. I, I'm going to try as hard as I can not to butcher too many names today, but I do not know how to spell, pronounce Porphyry. And of course, this individual wasn't even born until 234 AD. Porphyry may have been writing a biographical, I put in bunny ears there, biographical account, but he did so two centuries too late. The other biographer who rec- recounts this story is the Neoplatonist philosopher Iamblichus, and he was born in 250 AD. So, which story came first? And I just realized there that I was quoting from the second philosopher, whatever. He came, you know, 30, 40 years later. Yochanan's, obviously, his came first. And then again, I am well aware of the sheer number of books which have conveniently disappeared over the millennium. Perhaps the story was well known in Mashiach's day. Had it been recorded in the B.C. era, that Pythagoras did indeed predict to catch a fish. And then five centuries later, Yehusha did the same. It wouldn't matter either way with me, it really wouldn't, because as I've stated, 153, or 153, is a Pythagorean number. A detail you may have noticed is that the number of fish predicted by Pythagoras is never mentioned. We don't know what the final tally was. Only Yahushua Hamashiach secures 153 fish in the netting. He doesn't predict that number either, so there are wild variations between these stories they may not be referring to each other at all and so why am i making a deal about it because as i've already stated like three or four times already the number 153 is pythagorean many people suspect his prediction fell on 153 because of its sacred and divine qualities meaning many people suspect that's what pythagoras uh went with 153 even though it never says so right here we see a, a vesica piscis. I told you I was gonna pronounce it wrong. It should be piscus. vesica piscus. Specifically the number 153 relates to the vesica piscis. I can't say it, vesica piscis. The vesica piscis is a geometric composition formed by the intersection of two circles with the same radius. Do you see that right there? You got two circles and within the same radius. Intersecting in such a way that the center of each circle lies on the circumference of the other. So right over each other and they create a lens. I will ask, what do the two overlapping circles look like to you? I can think of a few different descriptions, the fish being one of them and there it is. Perhaps you're seeing something different, but I'm getting the sense that the ichthys is involved in the equation. The ichthys, of course, is a very early Christian symbol and may in fact be its earliest. The ichthys can still be found etched into the walls of ancient catacombs, leading many to suppose it doubled as an arrow. And so you can see in the picture there, like it's, it's pointing the way, you get it? Pointing the way, pointing in the direction of where Christians were to go, so as to worship in secret. It is by no coincidence that Mashiach's apostles were referred to as the fishers of men, and of course the number of fish which they pulled in was one hundred fifty-three, representing the fullness of the kingdom of heaven on earth. Before anyone accuses me of reading too much into this, vesica pis- <laughs> piscis vesica piscis literally means fish's bladder. It is even often used in its singular form, vesica. Uh, See, I want to say Pisces, Vesica Pisces, meaning a fish bladder. The origin of the Vesica Pisces may be mysterious, but without a doubt, hands down, Christianity was responsible for its spread, first as a fish symbol. Afterwards, it became a staple of the millennial kingdom. During the thousand year reign of Mashiach, the Vesica Pisces could quite literally be read in the very blueprints of its architecture. And, of course, you're going to see what I mean by by that in a little while. I'll show you. And when you do see it, you will not be able to unsee it. Now, I'm uncertain who made this painting, though, as you can tell, the vesica piscis has obvious sexual connotations to it. I might as well bring this up now. The vesica piscis also doubles as a representation for the vagina. We're all adults here, though maybe, (laughs) I'm sorry if you had children, I didn't tell you to cover their ears, but we're all adults. Mm -hmm. Given that the woman's reproductive organ is an added context to the equation, the vesica piscus describes a twofold desire. It is the object of desire for men, but far more importantly, it is the resulting feminine symbol of maternity and creation. The Pythagorean quote-unquote measure of the fish is therefore a mystical symbol which measures the intersection of the world of the divine with the world of matter and the very beginning of creation itself. Another way of describing the sexual union found within the vesica piscis is something I like to call the marriage of Ruachoth. And I've talked about this in the past, probably a year ago at this point. Supposing you have read my book *Mary Magdalene, Wife of Messiah*, then you will probably recall the links I took in outlining how Yehusha Hamashiach describes a true marriage. And this is what he says: Yehusha said. Marriage is the blending of two ruachoth, and of course, ruachoth is plural for ruach, or two coming together. Fornication is the joining of flesh. That's like really deep right there. That takes sexual intercourse to a whole new level. The books of the Nazarene, sixteen ten, the blending of two ruachoth into one being is a heavenly way of thinking, completely contrasting the typical joining of flesh between a man and a woman, which, in Yehusha's words. Rarely rises above fornication, and he's talking in the mar- in the context of marriage too. That many people joined by a priest in holy holy matrimony actually never rise beyond fornication. The entire discussion reminds me of Paul's circumcision debate. If anyone is paying attention, a great number of souls are outwardly circumcised, but they are still idolaters without the inner mark of Yahuwah. like the marriage of Ruachoth as found in the Vesica Pisces. The circumcision of the heart is through Gnosis. It is something to be experienced which cannot be expressed in words for those who have yet to partake in the heavenly mystery. How many people think they have a circumcised heart, I wonder? Many to most is my best guess. We also see this quote from the book of the Nazarene. Salome said, Master, when will the rule of Elohim come? And Yehusha replied, when women place greater value on the treasures they hold, for men will strive harder for gold than for brass. When man and woman cease to pander to the flesh and become truly one in ruach, for of this I assure you, unless man and woman exalt the ruach above the flesh, they will not know life and glory. Jumping ahead another two dozen verses, Maryam Salome asks Yehusha when the rule of Elohim will come. The rule of Elohim is just another reference to the kingdom of heaven, what we're talking about tonight the kingdom of heaven upon the earth, the thousand-year reign of Mashiach. Yehusha's response has the woman placing greater value on her true treasure, her ruach, which is the gold, rather than her flesh, which is the brass. The spiritual man will strive after that in their sexual union, the gold, not the brass. Only then will the two become elevated into the marriage of ruachoth, resulting in a life of glory. And then we read this quote also. Oh, this is from Bezora Teom. A gospel of thomas Yehusha saw some infants being nursed at the breast he said to his disciples these nursing infants are like those who enter the kingdom his disciples asked him then shall we become as infants to enter the kingdom Yehusha answered them when you make the two into one when you make the inner like the outer and the high like the low when you make male and female into a single one so that the male is not male and the female is not female then you have eyes in your eyes a hand in your hand a foot in your foot and an icon in your icon then you will enter the kingdom and that's of course bizorah Teom uh saying number 21. according to bizorah Teom, we see the same thing happening i am of the opinion that yahusha is once again referencing the Visica uh Piscis, when describing the person who enters the kingdom The male and female blending the Ruach uh, together creates the lens in the middle, right? So two souls coming together, creating the lens, whereas their masculine and feminine qualities are both indistinguishable, indistinguishable from the other. The circle is a symbol of the infinite or the perfect. It has no vortex, no beginning and no end. The Ouroboros comes to mind as does the wedding ring and the halo the circle also reminds us of the sun and the moon and of course the sun and the moon can ultimately ultimately be cross-referenced with adam and chua chua would be eve for those of you uh, who don't know what i'm referring to the sun being a representation of adam and the moon that of his woman chua it is my opinion that they that the cyclical coming together of the sun and the moon that is when the sun laps the moon may have coincided with the sexual union between the representative couple. Give me a few minutes to build the case for you. Immediately following Adam and Chua's transgression, the earth was cursed. But then there was also causes and effects to each of Yahuwah's pronouncements. Chua felt pain in childbirth because conception was a part of her rebellion with the serpent. Seems logical, no? And yet they were not the only created beings to fail at their intended purposes. Already, the light of the moon had been diminished so that the sun was appointed to be the greater light to rule the day because the moon recited against the sun a false report. You can read about that in the Aramaic Targum. Here is a quote right here, Genesis 1.16 in the Aramaic Targum, and Yahuwah made two great luminaries, and they were equal in glory, twenty and one years, uh, less six hundred and two and seventy parts of an hour, and afterwards the moon recited against the sun a false report, and she was diminished, and the sun was appointed to be the greater light to rule the day, and the moon to be the inferior light to rule the night and the stars. What is this so-called false report? We are not told. The immediate takeaway, though, is that creation itself is repeatedly documented as a series of conscious Ruachov, all of which are imbued with free will. And, of course, in the very least, the moon seems to be somehow tied with Chua's transgression. Well, here is another book which gives better clarification. So what is this from? This is from Bezora Bar-Navi, 4-4. That would be um, Bartholomew. Hepha saith again, O tabernacle that art spread abroad. And Miriam saith, Thou art the image of Adam. Was not he first formed and then Chua? Look upon the sun, that according to the likeness of Adam it is bright, and upon the moon, that because of the transgression of Chua it is full of clay. For Elohim did place Adam in the east and Chua in the west. Okay, so pay attention to that Adam's in the east, Chua's in the west. Actually, that's crazy. I just pointed east and west, too, when I'm facing. And appointed the lights that the sun should shine on the earth until Adam in the east and his fiery chariots and the moon in the west should give light unto Chua with a countenance like milk. And she defiled the commandment of Adonai. Therefore, was the moon stained with clay, and her light is not bright. Thou, therefore, since thou art the likeness of Adam, ought to ask him. But in me was he contained that I might recover the strength of the female. Zorabar bar Navi 4-4, and there you have it. The sun is a representative of Adam, whereas Chua is characterized by the moon. The fact that the moon has diminished in light due to Chua's transgression is not the points of this lesson. Try not to overlook the part where it says Adam was placed in the east and Chua in the west. Just as it is when the sun sets in the east and the moon fully rises in the west, right? So you got the sun coming down, moon comes up, and they're in the sky at the same time. Eventually the sun laps the moon, representing the man coming to the woman. It is then that we are presented with the vesica piscus, uh, a coming together both circles, which creates the sexual union. I'm not through yet. I have more references. And this one comes from the revelation of Moshe. And it says. Then Chua says to them, listen, all my children and my children's children, and I shall relate to you how our enemy deceived us. It came to pass while we were keeping in paradise that we kept each the portion allotted to him by Elohim. And I was keeping in my lot the south and the west. And the devil went into the lot of Adam where were the male wild beast, since Elohim parted to us the wild beast and had given all the males to your father and all the females he gave to me. And each of us watched his own. And the devil spoke to the serpent, saying, Arise, come to me, and I shall tell you a thing in which thou mayest be of service. So Chua was given the southwest portions of paradise to tend to, as well as the female animals. Adam, the northeast, and the male animals. I probably don't need to keep repeating this, but you figure the males and the females met in the metal once in a while, too. You know. That is where a direct correspondence with the male sun and the female moon come into the picture same as how the sun cyclically laps the moon 12 times in a year well here is where the false report of the moon plays such a crucial role in the story of her transgression assuming the meeting of adam and chua happened in monthly cycles that you know he comes from the east and she the west they meet in the middle then hasatan's heist was cleverly timed he needed to apprehend chua at an hour when the angels were gone But just as importantly, when the sun, being Adam, had nearly caught up to Chua's position, right? It's about the way that lapped the moon. He needed to nab her for a sexual liaison when she was anticipating the deed, anyways. She was expecting that it was going to happen at any hour, perfectly timed so that Adam hadn't yet arrived, but could immediately thereafter be invited into the action. All right, so this is from 3rd Baruch, chapter 9. Let's see what this says. And they, having retired, the night also fell, and at the same time came the chariot of the moon along with the stars. And I, Baruch, said, Adonai, show me it it also, I beseech of thee, how it goes forth, where it departs, and in what form it moves along. And the angel said, wait, and thou shalt see it also shortly. And on the morrow, I saw it, the moon, in the form of a woman, and sitting on a wheeled chariot and there were before it oxen and lambs and the chariot and a multitude of angels in like manner and I said Adonai what are the oxen and the lambs and he said to me they also are angels and again I asked why is it that it it at one time increases but another time decreases decre- decreases he's talking about the moon right increasing decreasing and he said to me listen O Baruch this which you see had been written by Elohim beautiful as no other And at the transgression of the first Adam, it was near to Samael when it took the serpent as a garment. And it did not hide itself, but it increased. And Elohim was angry with it and afflicted it and shortened its days. And I said, and this is just more and more evidence to me that I'm seeing it now that the, the people ask me this all the time. When does the month begin? I think it begins with the full moon. I think when the full moon comes up, that's the beginning of the month, not the, 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 the dark of the moon with the narrow crescent, the waxing crescent. I think it's the full moon. And I said, and how does it not also shine always, but only in the night? And the angel said, listen, as in the presence of a king, the courtiers cannot speak freely. So the moon and the stars cannot shine in the presence of the sun, for the stars are always suspended, but they are screened by the sun and the moon, although it is uninjured, is consumed by the heat of the sun. That doesn't answer the question for me if stars actually cease to shine during the daytime. Uh, Do they actually start popping on right after sunset? Because that's the way it definitely appears. The close relationship between the moon and Chua is once again told to us in 3rd Baruch. A little earlier on in the narrative, Baruch sees the sun driven by a man in a chariot. Here the moon is a woman in a chariot. The idea of the moon increasing her light rather than hiding at the time of transgression speaks of Chua's adultery. The queen was so enamored by her beauty that she revealed it to Hasatan rather than reserving it for her king. Adam, there is certainly more to this story, which I don't intend to give here. For example, I am led to believe that Hasatan entered paradise during the 10th or 11th hour of the night while the cherub was giving out uh, were out giving praises or the seraphim were flapping their wings. That is a reference to the Book of Adam, which also speaks of the cocks crow as a license between the earthly and spiritual realm. And I'm not going to go into all that in this paper, just for sake of time and context. Uh, but the, the angels, they they all go before the throne at a certain hour, and the the roosters will start crowing and that is, it's, it's kind of like an opening in the spiritual realm. Like They were designed to crow at a time when the windows and haven't opened up for prayer. And there's good reason to wake up at the sunrise and pray at that time. At the hour of Satan's seduction, the sun hadn't arrived yet. Though when it did, it was at the time of the month when the moon was very nearly lapped. Hopefully you're seeing the picture. There is undoubtedly a lot going on. We are not ultimately told what this false report was. It may very likely be the lie that she told to Adam, which seduced him into the menage a trois. Either way, Shimon Kepha denying Yehusha with the sound of the cock may be another mirror to this story. Adam and Chua were denying Elohim while down upon the earth, the roosters were crowing. Summing up the sun and the moon in relation to Adam and Chua, the marriage of Ruachoth and all that, we read about what will happen when the two reunite in Bezora. Philip, the Gospel of Philip. There's just one more illustration for you showing the uh, Jesus fish in the middle, making up the vesica piscus, and then the moon and the sun. On the, uh, it's interesting. They show the uh, the a waxing crescent moon there on the right. Anyways, getting back to Bezorah Philip, first came adultery, then murder. Murder is the son of adultery, son of the serpent. He is a murderer like his father and killed his brother. The mating of those who are dissimilar is adultery. When Shua was in Adam, there was no death. When she was separated from him, death came. If she enters back into him and he accepts her, there will be no more death. Bizarra Philip uh, 42 and 71. I, I skipped ahead there, just, but you can see the context between the two. Adultery came first, then murder. Adultery, mind you, that's the first sin of, of Chua was adultery, and not the other way around. The murderous one is an obvious reference to Cain, the offspring of adultery through the serpent. It is through Cain's conception that perfect union between heaven and earth via the Vesica Piscus. Was shattered. Likewise, it would take Chua's entering back into Adam for death itself to be vanquished. That is resurrection talk. And as you know, I am convinced that the resurrection already happens uh, at a past time in history. Adam and Chua were reunited. This is a good, a good um, break here. So the Iphis doesn't simply infer the vesica epischis. It also directs our attention to the Age of Pisces, the heavenly window in the zodiac by which Yehusha HaMashiach arrived. He arrived at the beginning of the Age of Pisces, ushering in his kingdom. The thing about Pisces is that it is a Latin word indicating a plurality of fishes, male and female. The sacred divine is a principle whereas the divine feminine and divine masculine of creation coexist in sacred polarities. But like the diminished light of the moon, the feminine divine has been thrown into imbalance. Though the controllers and the gatekeepers have long attempted to suppress the feminine divine, preferring a a patriarchal society and three dudes in heaven, my my serial readers are already well aware that she arrived through the outpouring of the Ruach HaKodesh. So right there with the Ruach Hakkadesh, you see the entering of the uh, age of the kingdom in the age of Pisces, and you have the two fish, the, the masculine and the female opposite polarities uh, coming in together. That would be the Ruach Hakkadesh. Then again, Chokma is the mother of Yahushua HaMashiach as well as the mother of Yasharel, not his betrothed. Every king needs his queen. And in the case of the second Adam, Yehusha would need his second Chua. Referring you again to the 153 fish story in mizora Yokanan, it is no coincidence that immediately afterwards, Shimon Kifa protests the Talmudim whom Yehusha loved. Kifa is forced to wrestle with Yehusha's proclamation that he would die, Kifa would die, the death of a martyr, he would stretch out his arms, Whereas Mashiach would return for his beloved, just as a groom would for his bride. The Magdalene is written. You can see the Greek there, how it's written. Uh, It's bearing the numbers 8 plus 40 plus 1 plus 3 plus 4 plus 1 plus 30 plus 8 plus 50 plus 8, all of which equals 153. The Migdol is the daughter of Zion, the second Chua, the counterbalancing fish in the age of Pisces not in any way to diminish the Ruach HaKadosh, but, you know, y- you see how the the feminine has been completely ripped out of Christianity. And it's funny how all these people are coming to terms now with the, the feminine Ruach HaKadosh, but they're still unwilling to deal with, with the Migdal and how important of a role she plays. Like, it's like, no, no, it's three, you know, it's, it's dudes. <laughs> there might be the third, the third dude might be a woman now, but no more women are being added right no reservations no room okay i'm going to give you guys a minute to uh check out this artwork here Hmm, i wonder what's happening i'm not sure if you've noticed but in medieval artwork yahusha is nearly always throwing up gang signs I'm only showing you a few examples, though I could easily go on and on and on and on, demonstrating a slideshow in the hundreds, if not thousands. Whether he is an infant in his mother's arms, confronting Hasatan in the wilderness or being beaten and crucified, Mashiach had a habit of flinging two fingers around the room. Even coming out of the tomb, he went about immediately showing everyone his street creds. It all ties in with the age of Pisces. The hand gesture refers to a fusion of polar energies, the male and female duality working in balance together. I bet you didn't know this would be uh, some art class tonight. There's a few more examples right here. Much like the Ekphes pointing the way in the underground catacombs, many have suggested that the Visica Piscus hand gesture was a common greeting among the followers of Mashiach very early on. And then, of course, they became like you know, Catholic benedictions as the as the centuries went on. I am showing you three separate art pieces and whoever the artist of the metal painting was, he totally got it. Take a look at the, the metal painting really quickly again. In recounting the Matet Yahu account of the two fishes being distributed among the crowd, Yahusha throws his, up his all too familiar hand sign as if to assure the viewer that the age of Pisces had arrived. If you look to the illustration on the far right, Yahusha is not only throwing up two fingers, but he is also seated and thrown within the vesca um, Piscus. So you can see right there, hopefully my mouse, my mouse is showing up in the, uh, the recording. And that's right inside of it. He's uh, the two lenses, the male and the female, overlapping each other. The connotation should be obvious enough. He is the pathway of creative energy by which the kingdom of heaven meets earth earth and all things are made new. This is where it really gets good here. As I was saying earlier, the origin of the vesica piscis is a mysterious one. Early Christians were certainly not estranged to it. One thing that remains absolutely certain, and very few people seem to know about it, is that the Avesca episcopus achieved its greatest glory during the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages. Millennial Kingdom architecture may not have invented sacred geometry, but they were certainly the first to build entire cathedrals around the concept. Just look at those beauties, why don't you? We see the circle-circle intersections in every which way you look. They're in the arches as well as the cloisters. They're in the rosary windows, the vaults, the porches, and uh, uh, traceries. The only place where the visca episcus cannot be found, apparently, is in the floor patterns, or so untold. Even more curious is the total disregard towards the visca episcus concept after the Middle Ages came to its eventual conclusion. For whatever reason, which is not told to us, enlightenment architects, simply quit designing their buildings around the sacred geometry geometry first established by the Gothic cathedrals. Pay close attention, and his story appears to be telling us something. Heaven and earth came together during the dark ages.